0: Alright, good evening fellow grognards. Welcome to episode 9 of the Grognard Grumbles, Season 2, yes, we are back with a vengeance. Old school vengeance. Once again, joined by my co-host Chase Green and a very good uh, friend and special guest tonight, Bill Dufton. Uh, Chase, Bill, how you guys doing tonight?
1: Wonderful, thank you sir. Pleasure.
0: Chase, how you doing,
1: man? Doing good, can't complain.
0: It's been way too long since we've been able to do one of these talks, and uh, I'm very excited to have Bill on here. He's esteemed, uh, Grognard, old school dungeon master, collector, amongst other things. Uh, Bill, anytime I have somebody on the on the show, I like them to introduce themselves, tell a little bit about you know where they come from and gaming, uh, where they got started, and anything else they want to talk about. So, um, Bill, fantastic! Thank you. Appreciate the
2: introduction. There, I'll go ahead and take the baton a little bit. So uh, I have just got into the uh, my 51st year. And with that, I can say officially that I have been gaming now for 41 years. As my first experience with uh, gaming, basically I was 10 years old. Uh, started at, you know, for that, that birthday present from my mom. She gave me my first Dungeon Master's Guide. You know, obviously before that I played, uh, you know, chess or with army men and stuff like that. But I would say over the course of that four decades, uh, I have not only played Dungeons and Dragons and all of the the various versions of it, but really a lot of the games that came about in the 80s in terms of the D6, right? You know, you have Starfleet Battles, Axis and Allies, uh, any of the main publishers that were out there. So I really kind of grew up really a, a child of the 80s
0: type of gaming. Uh, what what year did you get started, Bill? You said forty something years.
2: Yeah. So, uh, wow, geez,
0: I would go ahead and put it nineteen.
2: I think nineteen seventy nine. I would have gone ahead and been started gaming. Actually, wow. formally, yeah. formally gaming, I guess, as we kind of refer to it, rather than the the
0: traditional life or Scrabble or or chess, right, or right. kind of stuff. Yeah. And so, you got? Did you get started in D and D, or you started with, uh, you know? war games and all that stuff.
2: Well, you know, <clears throat> I'm uh, sorry about that. The, nope. I really started at, uh, Dungeons and Dragons. I think there was a friend of mine that had some of this and I went over for a pool party. I think it was. And I remember we kind of like, uh, ended up pulling out this game and rolling some dice and, you know, having fun while we were having hot dogs or cook out on the grill. And, you know, my mother, I think, saw how excited I was about it. And she ended up saying, you know, that's going to be a good present for him. And she ended up taking care of that. So it's probably really my mom that got me involved in gaming. How about that? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Bob. <Mom. laughs> She'll appreciate that. Anyhow, uh, you know, the, the there wasn't a ton of people that were really into Dungeons and Dragons and kind of like my area. But what I did find was uh, a couple of other games that, you know, really kind of uh, made it possible. And I I really would say it's the following, right? There was a game called Feudal, and I really thought that that was really kind of cool in terms of being able to march around. And it was the first time I've ever played with any, like, figures, per se, right, for a game. Right, And I was able to incorporate that with pegboard that we kind of used to... Uh, you know, the saw to cut it up. And we use those as moving them around as the bases on a little castle that I built for the fourth grade uh, science project. And as such, you know, built this castle and, and used feudal. And really, I can remember sitting in the family room today and having the castle in front of me looking actually at the dungeons masters guide while i was actually moving the pieces around the sea to make sure that they all looked right and they were all doing the right thing so it was a pretty exciting time um so back to you i think because you were going to ask a question maybe chase
0: oh uh, no yeah. so i i was gonna i was gonna say something um yeah it's it's really interesting to hear you know you got started in that way um you know with with War gaming and all that stuff—it seems like a very common story with with people from that time.
2: Yeah, there there wasn't a lot of people to to say, "Hey, son, come on over here," and you know, this is what we're going to play or this is what we're going to do, right? Yeah. And I think in probably just eighth or ninth grade, uh, we ended up going down and remember, it was the uh, the basement of the library. And that's where we really kind of did the Dungeons and Dragons uh, after school. Uh, we were we didn't we weren't able to go ahead and play with it actually like during lunch or anything like that. It was kind of a, it was a little more strict school. And as right. such, uh, we would go over to the library, and we would play for maybe you know like two hours. I honestly I don't remember anything about the characters, but I do remember the setting because I was surrounded by all these volumes of books, right? Yeah, and the the most fun really didn't probably happen for me in terms of Dungeons and Dragons, I guess, or any of the role-playing, probably until I uh, started college. There was a few years uh, where uh, I didn't really do a lot of gaming, you know, did some moving around and stuff like that. But yeah. really, in my first year of college, I got hooked up with a couple of folks, and we did... Everything from, and these were the main games, right? We did Starfleet Battles. We did Battletech. We did uh, Traveler. uh, We did uh, Star Wars, the West End Games version of it. And and then obviously Dungeons & Dragons. And the only character I really remember uh, from that particular time was a a fourth level uh, Fighter Magic user, an Elven one, that uh, I seemingly ended up... Being on a mountain, charging an Umber Hulk is the only thing I can remember. Needless to say, that didn't work out too well for that character. <laughs> <laughs> Lance <laughs> or no Lance, <laughs> but uh, you know, from there, I think, I think really the gaming for me has been like a, a series of sprints, right? right? And what I mean by that, it's not been like consistent for forty years. It's right. usually. You know, two or three years, maybe five year little stints where uh, I've spent in a lot of time or significant investment, either because it's newfound love or enjoyment of the hobby, maybe something new that others, uh, you know, friends of mine have kind of, uh, you know, started to talk about. Or there's even those things about some of the collecting aspects uh, that I've said, "Hmm, you know, that might be kind of cool. I wouldn't mind having something like that. Right. So yeah. that's, what's been keeping me going for all of these years is those changes as well as, uh, you know, the new people that are getting involved in it rather than just the normal group. Right.
0: Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Speaking of changes, I mean, uh, you know, the hobby's grown considerably, especially the past year or so with the COVID thing and, uh, and, and the, with the OSR movement that started, you know, a little bit over a decade ago now, um, mm-hmm. You know, our aspect of the hobby, the old school gaming, is uh, really really coming back into the forefront again. And so is collecting. Um, Absolutely.
2: I you know, probably, and I'll just share this a little bit with you. So there was a point in my particular life where I did not you know humble means in terms of growing up, uh, you know very humble. and and even later on, i I didn't really have uh, a collection. Right. I mean, if I had I can remember, I sold all of my Dungeons and Dragons and all of my gaming stuff. I drove up to the Michigan and, uh, you know, obviously in there in Detroit. And it was uh, I got rid of everything. Right. I had absolutely nothing. And, you know, that was not necessarily a low point, but that was what I needed to do at the time. Since then, I would say for probably about the last 25 years, I've really made a point to. Uh, either reacquire or gain those particular things that I've lost. And I I would say um, I I definitely rank up there in terms of uh, collections. And I try to specialize not so much in, uh, you know, one particular niche, whether it's in role-playing or first edition or, you know, OSR or or what have you. It's things that mattered to me in terms of that I had enjoyed and that I had played, you know, firsthand. Uh, Some people are very much into a particular setting. And, you know, for me, that was I may not have been involved in it, uh, but it's still nice to go ahead and be aware. But I don't necessarily collect that in terms of my collection. So what I what I really appreciate is the history about, you know, the story that, oh, this was somebody's particular collection or they played this game, maybe some notes that were chicken scratched inside or or one of my favorite items that I actually got was a Dungeons and Dragons coloring book that I would have to say it's if not a known artist, it's somebody that had a significant talent because what they did to that particular book was incredible. And, and, and so it's memorable, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, lo- I love, um, you know, I'm not a crazy collector. I mean, I, I have a small collection, nothing close to yours. Um, And it's only it's only really because uh, just just for gaming for so long, I've just collected some stuff, you know. But, yeah, my favorite stuff to find is, uh, you know, books that have been written in old character sheets in a box or, you know, something like that. It's it's awesome to find those kind of things, you know,
2: it is. And and then it puts it into like kind of like context. Obviously, you can't review all of it, but it is kind of it, it brings you back to a different time where instead of putting everything uh, on a, on a spreadsheet or digital, you know, you write everything out on your character sheet. And what I like to say is that infamous space on the hit points that you're constantly erasing. So it's literally <laughs> the paper is like, when you say paper thin, I mean, it's like hairline thin paper, right? Hey, oh, yeah. gray. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I think the, You know, the oldest characters that I have from a character sheet is probably from the early 90s from the RPGA. Uh, That particular character. I played a paladin at that time that that I still actually have all of those character sheets, all of my chem show records, which was, uh, for for those listening, it it was where you were able to kind of uh, do your own little... larping and, and get together and and trade in either magic items uh you know for more powerful or better ones uh and you would have some documentation that would go along with that to, to recognize that you actually had proof rather uh that you had those particular items and it was by chem show and it would have been signed by lord o'keefe or something like that right so yeah. some of our listeners would recognize those things but you know it's not only it's not only that and you know i don't I don't profess to go ahead and say that's what I enjoy because now here we are in 2020. And I think the bringing the the knowledge of some of the games to the younger generation or a different generation has been important. And it's not only in newer editions, but in just really appreciating kind of like where we've been in that history of, you know, this particular game, you know, whether it's Dungeons and Dragons or any you know, hobby that we've decided to choose.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's, that's actually, uh, you know, a big part of, uh, you know, my gaming love is the history of gaming. Uh, yeah. I, I, I like, I like to know where anything comes from and I'm a big, uh, fan of history of anything. Um, and, and being an avid gamer, I, I had to, you know, I, I mean, that's, that's part of the reason I started this podcast was to talk to people like you and just talk about the history of gaming. And, you know, I think it's important to preserve, um, you know, those things, to to know where we come from and to, to teach people where, you know, where the source comes from. And maybe, you know, even if you're not interested in playing, you know, first edition D&D or original D&D or whatever, um, you know, it's probably still important to know where those things come from and, you know, what made up the hobby today, you know?
2: Right. You know, and it's... It's true. People that are both coming in as well as maybe they had had started earlier and they had gone ahead and played. They may have played in a particular style that uh, right, wrong or otherwise was really what they knew. And they haven't picked it up in 20, 30 years or even more. And so sometimes that knowledge is lost. So that little refresher, I actually kind of, uh, you know, run a small little adventure setting you might almost call it a campaign where it's loosely linked modules together a first edition of lesser known published items that uh you know i kind of run some particular characters through so they get the benefit of experiencing you know some of those particular modules or that style but also that that style of playing and in my opinion the first edition style of playing and many would probably agree is much more around the tactics and the coordination of the characters together, Uh, especially when you have eight or nine typical characters that might have been very specialized in uh, what they've done in their build and how they play, versus today, where I think that particular style people are looking for more universal or more well-rounded, more capable characters, depending upon what the situation and setting is so that they can actually contribute to an encounter or to whether it's a, an actual fight or whether it's just some general role-playing or problem-solving, uh, they can actually contribute, whereas before it may not have been that much. Uh, so with that being said, there is still a learning curve then, and a style of play that if you if you incorporate only some portions of it, you don't get the full benefit of it or potentially realize, you know, what others were actually thinking at that time that made sense.
1: Yeah, it can actually lead to real light bulb moments, hearing other, the way other people play, that it's like, oh, I didn't quite get how that was supposed to be done. But then you hear someone else talk about it, and you're like, oh, and it just clicks.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a, an aha moment for sure. And, and I actually... Even with myself, and I, I, think of myself as not necessarily a rules lawyer, but I've played a lot of uh, heavy war games and, and such over the years in miniatures. So when I look at you know D and D as it was originally written, there's some very very specific ways in which the rules can be interpreted or and in, in, in played. And so what I like to do is to distill that down. And anytime we have a situation, I before we before we complete, kind of like the day I. Or the session, rather, I like to explain kind of like how something the, the mechanic works, and so that the next time people get that benefit, rather than just it being like, oh, you know, that's that's how that encounter went, or it was good, or it was easy, or it was difficult, right? Uh, they get something out of it, so that the next time it's a more fruitful experience, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I've been I've been actually kind of following your campaign, Bill. You've been running uh, here on the Discord server. And it's been really yeah. interesting It's been really interesting to observe because, uh, you know, you're running this first edition AD and D game uh, by the book. You know, rules is yeah. written, which uh, I think everybody. I don't think anybody does anymore. Uh, you know, I, even people that play first edition or older editions of the game, I think they've the game has been around so long and evolved so long. People have picked up things here and there just from house rules they played 20 years ago, or a new edition they borrowed. You know, a cool idea. And uh, a lot of people forgotten how to play the game rules as written. Uh, so it's, it's really interesting that you're playing that way. And I've observed that your players are a little bit uh, confounded, you know, they're, they're like, Oh, that works this way. Or, you know, <laughs> this works that way. You know,
2: we had a great one where, you know, there's always been a little bit of confusion on everything from, uh, you know, which characters can wear armor or cast spells with armor or, uh, the one that I like is the, you know, the protection from evil spell, uh, you know, right. first level spell or what the paladin has, or sometimes even what I really would say is when you get into combat, actual combat, you know, what is the order of things? Uh, normally, right. yeah. uh, like I said, your, like you said, rather, pardon me, was when you encounter somebody you roll for your surprise and then you roll your distance and then you there's a lot of parameters that go into that and then when you actually roll that initiative there's a little bit of math that's involved but there's an order to things and as people become more and more comfortable with it they start soon to go ahead and realize that oh my gosh you know we never played it this way it's a yeah Yeah. it really happens that wow that's that's a we never played it that way, you know, and they're kind of like, that's really what that means. And I'm like, yeah, that's really what that means.
0: <laughs> yeah. Especially with first edition AD and D. you know, even from the beginning, I think a lot of people looked at the combat system, especially, because um, that's probably yeah. the most complex part of the game. And they just kind of threw that out and went, went with something simpler, you know, or uh, right. just, just homebrewed something up. Um, so it's, yeah, it's really interesting that you're playing rules as written. That that's really fascinated me about your campaign you're running.
2: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It's uh, you know it's been rewarding for me both in terms of sharing that and imparting some of that knowledge, but also just really being a student in terms of being able to, in turn, articulate how something is meant to be. For an audience that arguably, you know, has been playing or been familiar with it around the same time that I started, as most of the players are about the same age as myself. You know, I was going to kind of like make an analogy on something rather than rather than somebody like jumping right in. What I did was is I really kind of forced them to follow the rules for building a character. And, you know, I told them, like, this is how magic works. This is how, your, you know, your, uh, your stats are going to go ahead and play in. This is how his initiative is going to work. This is how training is going to go ahead and take place, as well as the experience points. Because there was, you know, in first edition, how experience points were gained is not like any other, well, maybe second edition, but arguably yep. it's, it's very different. And so people have had to learn how to balance, really acquiring, uh, you know, treasure, the experience yep. points, training, and so they're they're actually involved in the evolution of their character rather than just saying, oh, roll a die for your new hit points.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no. The. Um, think about it. Yeah. 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 And the the experience point thing, just to touch on that, just a little bit. That's. That's a really interesting thing, you know. It's a holdover from well, original Dungeons and Dragons, and, yeah. uh, and you know, uh, the uh, gaining treasure to gain experience points was the biggest part of how you gained experience points in AD and D. Uh, you know, killing monsters got you experience points, but it didn't get you that much. You know, it was about
2: one eighth or one tenth right. of the experience at most. Yeah, yeah.
0: and really so you know, uh, and a lot of people, I you know, I've played in previous first edition games. And game masters don't factor that in. They they look at the rule and don't use it. And it's like, well, I mean, that's a big part of how you gain experience points. Um, so you, if, if you're not going to do that, you have to have some kind of alternate method. And of course, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, I mean, in second edition, they, they had some other ways, you know, you gained experience based on your class and things like that. Um, right. But the treasure thing, the interesting thing is I'm seeing a comeback of that in some OSR games and in some people's. Uh, you know, home games and new rules they're writing. They they are really seeing the benefit of the treasurer's experience point thing. So it's interesting that you brought that up because I think it's a it's a really neat curio um, that you know. Yeah, I, I just think it's cool that that it's kind of making a comeback. Actually, you know.
2: Well, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go ahead and do it. I would tell you I played in probably. 20 to 25 arguably different, you know, dungeon master campaign type of events where I've invested, you know, several months or even several years uh, with some very good, you know, dungeon masters over the years. Uh, and, And I guess I've just really been fortunate. You know, everybody hears about these particular stories. I guess I've been more or less blessed with that in terms of just, you know, good, knowledgeable people that have really made, uh, the experience fun for everyone really that's what you're trying to do but yeah exactly I what i found was is while a, a dungeon master may have been very good in moving and facilitating really kind of the adventure or you know their campaign that they had you know developed themselves was really an adherence or and a, a mixing of different additions together and i think it was I'm not sure if it was because of playability or uh, that's just what their characters made the assumptions and they just kind of went with it, whatever it might have been. And what I think it did was, it while it facilitated the gameplay for their group of players, they really didn't gain what that particular edition meant. Uh, right, for, for the purpose in terms of its creation and how the modules or how the encounters or, or how the rules work. So I pulled back and I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. I'm going to sit down. We'll look at the three core books. That's all we're going to use. We're going to play these particular uh, you know, one shot or, or very simplistic modules so that people can get familiar. We started at first level and we're just walking through and it's been rewarding for everyone.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I, I've really enjoyed. Uh Watching you guys progress, and hopefully at some point when I'm not too busy, I'd like to join in. Well, we'd
2: be happy to have you. Absolutely, we'll have those characters ready for you to go ahead and just jump in for those uh, those special guest appearances, or those that you know may just want to go ahead and experience it for it for a shot or not.
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. The interesting thing is, you know, we were talking about playing rules as written um, and experiencing the game. It's meant to be written. And it's kind of weird because, you know, I, I'm, I've been a game master for a long time. I'm usually the game master, not always, but usually.
2: Uh-huh.
0: And I've kind of flip flop back and forth on that. Sometimes I want to run a game, rules as written, just so people can experience the experience of the edition, as you were saying. And then sometimes I, it's a mishmash of all kinds of house rules.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and, you know, whatever yeah. I'm feeling at the time. Especially
1: um, when people learn Thaco.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean that's uh everybody laughs about, you know, they go, you know, but it does make sense. And that's just one element when I say it makes sense that it makes sense for me more so than anything else, right? Because that's where I grew up with and that's what I learned with. So that's just kind of uh just been ingrained or imprinted almost, right?
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's there's nothing wrong with that. Again, I, I've many times ran a D and D game rules is written. I I have ran many first edition games in the past. Rules is written um, with the combat system and pay for training and uh, you know all the all that stuff. Uh, right. But you know, usually, um, in, in my perspective, I usually just uh, try to make the game as enjoyable for everybody. So if there's some feature of the game that somebody's not enjoying, or well, not just somebody, but as the group as a whole, um, I'll change it. No problem. You know. So I've been, I've been known to do that. And uh,
2: yeah, I think you need to, I think you, you've got to balance it and you can, you have to be, you have to be conscientious, right. In terms of, you know, the, what's taking place with your characters and your players and how they're responding. Are they, are they learning about their character, not only in terms of how the rules are, but actually making their character more optimal so they can actually contribute uh you know more so than just themselves and what their own creativity is able to bring and so i think the first place that you know not everything is based on a die roll and that's where you need to keep that into perspective uh, you know you can follow rules as written but about the the dungeon master's guide as well as every good dm i've ever seen you know and said hey you know, it's up to you, you know, it's subject to whatever, you know, is going on, and you have to keep that in mind, uh, because if you don't, you end up having characters that don't have, and I think, being, you know, the characters, because I'm trying to be in the character, right, right. you have the players that, you know, don't have it as a, a worthwhile experience or use of their time, so you have to kind of make sure that you keep them engaged and and positive, so that's where I try to to, to do my dungeon mastering, is to what have I learned, and, and how I see things happen, and then if I have to do something the next time, you know, I'm I've already rehearsed it and I'm ready to go uh, because you know what, nobody's perfect. You make mistakes, or you know, you move on.
0: So absolutely, yeah. yeah I mean, I, another part of that is, as you were saying, it's not just the rules. Uh, you know, old school D and D, and you know, we're talking about D and D specifically here, uh, but it yeah. applies to other games. Is it's not just the rules. It's also a style of play, right? Um, and it's it's very different from how D and D's play today. And yeah,
2: and and I've got some some very close friends that you know I joined their particular campaigns for, whether it was three uh, five or Pathfinder second or clearly with with fifth edition. It's probably obviously the the largest contingent of players in terms of Dungeons and Dragons presently. And you know, for each of them because of what they're familiar with or what they grew up with or what they learned, they have a particular style of play. So even myself, who've arguably been on and off for these four decades, you know I have to learn that particular group's style of play. So it's not right. just right. the rules or the framework that it gives you, but you have to kind of like what is the personality of the players that you're you know engaged with and spending the time with because ultimately, Right. If you're not having a good time or they're not having a good time, you know, you kind of need to do something different. Like I said, I've been fortunate that, you know, the groups that I've been involved in have been very successful for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you can't you can't really. And I've I've learned this lesson hard um, as a game master. You cannot force your players to play a type of game that you want to play specifically. You know, oh, that's so true. That's, yeah. so
1: true.
2: that's so true. That's so true.
0: And I've, I've made that mistake many times. Uh, you know, I come up with a certain world, maybe a certain setting or even certain rules or just a certain style that, you know, I try to enforce that and it it just doesn't work. The uh, players have a certain style of playing that they're used to, and they're going to, they're going to do that, you know? Yeah.
2: Well, there's, there's that, uh, I've seen it on, on so many different places that, you know, you can reread the module, you could highlight it, you could take. Notes on it. You can pre-roll different things that end up taking place. And by the way, I've done all of those. <laughs>
0: yeah,
2: yeah. I, I could show you the I could show you the highlighted modules and the comments that are both in in um, you know pencil and, and pen that I used. And and ultimately, we get into the particular setting, and they decide to go totally a different direction. It didn't right. make you know yeah. it, it just or or that one really important character or NPC that I had built up to, for, uh, you know, being able to impart some knowledge, they decide, Oh, we don't have to go talk to that person right now. We're going to go over here and talk to this. <laughs> one.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, it, it, every game master knows it. And Chase knows it too. Cause you know, he game masters on occasion and has yeah. been doing it for a while that, you know, it, this, it, yeah, they never do what you expect them to do. Never
1: so, Don't make it to where somebody's important enough that you need to move the story forward. Cause they're going to miss the next week.
0: Yeah. Oh, yes, that's
2: right. That's the other thing that you have to deal with in today's day and age. Whereas, you know, I think there wasn't as many choices uh, previously in terms of activities that you could do, right? You know, you could pretty much count on your, your group of players, whether we were teenagers or in our 20s or whatever it might be, that, you know, that's all we had available at that time. Nowadays, as we're older, we have families, we've got other commitments, you know, we've got we've got things that we have to do that sometimes take us away or, or holidays or vacation or work responsibilities. So you end up missing. And then, you know, then you got to play catch up. So the game masters being responsible uh, members for the group, they have to catch everybody up or make something happen.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that we've kind of dived into this topic because it's one of my favorite topics uh, is, you know, game mastering philosophy. And uh, I know you know you're you're an old hat at the game mastering thing, uh, so yeah. I like I, I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about you know w- when you're not using modules, um, what do you do to prep for a game? Sure. So
2: i I think I approach it uh, whether it's methodical or you know very organized, or almost tactical in the sense. What I typically do, let's say I've got a, a, a new setting that I want to introduce the characters to, whether it's a module or something that I'm kind of pulling together. What I typically go ahead and do is I will quickly go ahead and scan the module for the major themes. Uh, is it is it really just like a I hate to say hack and slash, but are you really just trying to go ahead and defeat the undead, let's say, or, or you know, the evil wizard or whatever it might be? Or is it kind of a, you know, a creative one where there's some problem solving and some discovery type work? Or is it a rescue mission maybe where you have to, you know, do a quick hit and run where you got to get in and do that? So that kind of like gets me that, that background because you can't really tell from the outside cover, right? And then the other piece that I look at for me is the, what is the, the setting? You know, is there some environment? Uh, environmental situation that I have to key in on, you know, is it a nighttime type of adventure or is it a dungeon one? Is it a, uh, you know, is it uh, an ice setting or, or what have you, or are you going to be able to be forced to travel, uh, you know, overland or be flying or, or water breathing the entire time, you know, all those kinds of little things. So I have that situation prepared for, uh, in the event when the customer, excuse me, the, I'm saying customers because I'm a, a sales exec. <laughs> uh, when I when I think about the characters asking questions, I want to make sure that I can explain that readily. So that gets that environment piece. And then the next thing of it is what might be some logical uh, breaking points or, or when I say a break point, And more so like for, you know, if we're going to do a four or five or six hour session, you know, what might be a good stopping point uh, for us to go ahead and take a break. So sometimes I don't want to feel as if I'm hurrying them along to get to that particular point. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to open too much if we go past that or otherwise. So I have some some logical. So those are, you know, most important for me, familiarizing myself with the module Familiarizing and, and understanding what the environment or the major themes are going to be, as I said, and then ultimately kind of like some little checkpoints. Uh, and it's a very project management, or, you know, I don't want to say tactical, but I think of it from a militant perspective where I'm, you know, very structured and disciplined in terms of that. So that keeps me grounded, it keeps me comfortable. And then as the characters, uh, you know, are encountering and doing things and the players have questions, then then I am more comfortable in the little highlights or the little checkpoints that I do. And then the other thing for me as the dungeon master, sometimes I will have, uh, I think of it almost like a, a module or an event that I may be running at a, a convention or something like that. So I'll have a lot of dice or items pre-rolled so I can expedite in the event that there's various encounters or other things. You know, sometimes obviously you want to roll dice just so that, you know, the, the characters get the feel of, you know, behind sure. the screen, uh, some of those surprise type things. But what I try to do is, is to get as much of that busy work, as I call it, out of the way that's not going to be impactful to our actual playtime. I really want to maximize that. And then the other thing that I do is a lot of times the module, because they maybe have been played already, or just because of my experience, sometimes encounters are maybe too difficult or right. you know, I, or, or you know it's uh, if potentially a, a, a TPK for the party if you know they lose on the surprise roll or something. So what I try to do is balance that out from the actual experience. So that is my creativity that I'm bringing. Uh, I would tell you that, you know, it's, it's easy to kill a party as a dungeon master. Oh, oh I mean, yes. It really is, you know. <laughs> so your balance is always about, you know, how do I make it uh, extremely risky, but also rewarding, but rewarding in the sense that they've learned something or they've enjoyed themselves, Right.
0: Uh, That that aspect really comes from, I I think a lot of that comes from experience, you know, uh, knowing how to balance an encounter and those type of things, knowing the right treasure to give, you know, uh, that's, that all comes from experience as a game master. And it's, uh, you know, I tell people a lot when, when you first start being a dungeon master, you're not going to be good at it. You know, Um, I've never seen anybody that's good right off the bat. You know, it's, it, a lot of it comes from experience and learning how to do things. Yeah, the,
2: the, and, and I'm still learning, too, and I've seen from, you know, you learn from your players how they play their characters and what you think is going to be their style. So do you, do you change that spear plus one to, you know, a bow plus one, right, because they're more right. acclimated towards that uh, or maybe they're because they're non-proficient in it or, or what have you, right? And and then the other thing is sometimes, you know, you've got to change those potions around. And it's not more than just, uh, you know, some extra healing that they can go ahead and sip along the way. Right. Right. But it it actually is something that's going to be useful to them. And what I mean by that is uh, it's easy to go ahead and say, well, let's use the fly, uh, you know, potion or something like that. But sometimes there's, you know, other stuff. That really makes sense, uh, whether it's an oil or it's a potion or, you know, it's something that is it's not a major item. It's not going to overbalance, uh, you know, the party, but it's going to make them feel like, oh, like well, I can take a little bit greater risk or a little bit greater enjoyment, as I call it. Right. Because I have this particular disposable item now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, yeah, that- or, or the one that's not very good at their
2: their spell selection, I, yep. as I like to, you know, try to encourage, you know, not everybody, you know, if you've got 30 spells as a, you know, a 10th level magic user that you're going to be able to memorize, you know, there may be a time where they, they've chosen incorrectly, but I'll have, you know, maybe some potions along the way to kind of balance that out. And that's where I still like as the dungeon master also to know the characters. So that's an important thing, actually, that I kind of didn't touch upon earlier. It's not about me really knowing the module, but it's yeah. about understanding their characters and, you know, whether it's just the uh, the character sheets, but also their style of play. So that becomes important uh, as well so that you can go ahead and balance it out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, it's... Um I was gonna. I was gonna say. It seems like you're more of a more of a modules guy, right? Do you do you ever homebrew stuff? I
2: do. You know the the homebrew stuff. Um, believe it or not, that's actually where I started. Because yeah. remember, yeah. I you might have recalled, like I said, you know, I didn't, I couldn't always go out and buy a module, right? I was a, oh, I was yeah. a teenager, yeah. and I didn't have like you know my allowance or whatever it might have been was not significant uh, enough to go out, and I used to. Go to Walden Books and they had this Other Worlds uh, Club where I could get fifteen percent off a module. And I think I remember I would buy modules. I think they were like seven bucks, right. uh, You know, for a module there. But I mean, that was a lot of money. I mean, that was like you know four hours of work for me at that particular point after taxes and all that other stuff, right? And so I did uh, a lot of I don't want to say world building but I definitely, you know, would, would sit down with the graph paper and I would create the kind of the dungeon uh, or the keep. And, you know, as it related to the, you know, the worlds or something like that, I would kind of like, you know, just sketch something out. Uh, and really I would, I would break it down to, I like things in groups of three. So, yeah. you know, what is the, what is the objective, you know, who's the main adversary associated with the, and what are the what are the things that kind of like surround it? Again, that's where I focused in on. So if we're going to be dealing with you know in the forest, you know, what is the wandering monsters that I need to deal with, or what type of people, uh, or what when I say people, I mean what type of NPCs rather are going to be there in that type of setting that I need to kind of like make sure I at least have an idea what they are doing. And yeah. so for me, I I guess I. I looked at the dungeons as pretty big, and I, I mentioned this because I've always been, uh, from my style of personal play, I've always been very much about the the lawful neutral, lawful good type, right? I've always enjoyed right. paladins or those type of characters. And so the, the funny part about that is most of my dungeons that I had created, whether it was a dungeon or it was world, they were actually going against, you know, the baddest of the bad in terms of the bad dragons or the undead or the demons and the devils. And so I always wanted to have those type of settings. So I would build, uh, whether it was one of the planes of of hell, uh, you know, I would build, you know, for Mammon or something like that, I would build his particular, uh, you know, castle out and, you know, or or expand upon, you know, one of the planes so that it was a big setting and it was always bringing those characters through that. So I can remember having big, huge pieces of graph paper uh, that I would create, like, at this point, was this the world's largest dungeon. And I would create, yeah. like, a a dungeon that, uh, you know, that, that was arguably, that's what I worked with. And so I spent a lot of time you know making those particular dungeons up so i think it gave me a level of familiarity in terms of you know how those things worked so i spent a lot of time on that actually when i was uh, yeah. you know creating and world building and such
0: yeah that's uh you know i'm i'm definitely more of that style um uh, because like you said when it, when i was younger you know, I could barely afford the books, much less yeah. models. You know,
2: <laughs> yeah, that's just the reality. You are—I mean, I—I was articulating that, you know. So I was a little bit slower in terms of, but I was remembering, and I don't—you can't really see it here, but I, right. I you can see my hands and my—I'm looking up to the, looking up to the sky, and I'm saying to myself, "Okay, what was I doing?" You know, I can remember being in my, you know, my my dad's office, and I had this big, huge graph paper and my ruler out, and I can actually remember, you know, making it, uh, and then writing little notes on it in terms of what it was and what it meant. Uh, Because again, that's just how I approached it. I didn't have somebody who told me this, uh, you know, in terms of, but my most favorite setting was arguably of modules, just back to that a little bit, was, you know, the G and D and and Q series, right, in terms of modules. And and for me, I have arguably run those as many times as any person that I've known on the planet, right? I've probably run that setting of modules uh, about seven times, you know, through uh, for a series of characters. Sometimes it was as first edition. Sometimes it was as, uh, you know, third edition, uh, sometimes it was as Pathfinder, and even in Fifth Edition, right? And so, yeah. for me, I'm really very familiar with those uh, those particular modules. And as a result, you needed to add some additional world building capabilities and how those plugged in. I mean, you didn't just drop characters into it; you had to right. weave kind of the whole world around it. Uh, yep. Especially like in the in the Vault of the Drow right, in terms of D3, you needed the, to flesh out those particular houses uh, yeah. that yeah. Were, were part of it. And so I spent a lot of time doing those particular things as well. So it's not just that they gave me a little bit of structure, but then I needed to go ahead and really flesh it out.
0: Yeah, it, you know, that, that was the one thing about those old school modules is they left a lot of open room for you to create your own things um, they did. On, on purpose. You know, they, they were trying to show you, hey, this is how to be a dungeon master. And here's some stuff for you to play with. Right. And like, for yeah. example, you know, my favorite module, um, even though I'm not a huge module guy, the one I, I've ran over and over and over again and spun it on its head is uh, Keep on the Borderlands.
2: Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. But, you know, for example, I always I think I've I use that just about in every campaign in some form or fashion. Uh, you know, and, and a lot of times the players don't even notice that I'm recycling it again <laughs> because, you know, I just well, changed it up.
1: Some of us might, but
0: well, yeah, chase might. Cause he's been gaming with me long enough. Yeah,
1: he, I mean, you know, for,
2: for that particular module, it still is, I think probably in the, in the everybody's list of anybody that played or started playing before the year 2000, I would say that's in their top five of modules in terms of familiarity. If you, even if you hadn't played in it, I almost guarantee you've read it.
1: it, oh, it
2: you know, yeah. it's just just because it was, it just was so awesome. I mean, there was so much information in there. Aside from the fact of the owl bear, which you know was fantastic, right in that encounter. Yeah. You know, you had the hermit that was involved. Um, uh-huh. You know, <laughs> you actually had the keep, and it was. At that particular point, I don't know, you know, because remember, that wasn't an, if I'm not mistaken, right, it's not really an A, D, and D module, right? It was a B for basic, right? Yes.
0: yes. So,
2: you know, that you had that sixth-level fighter that was the Lord of the Keep, right, I think it was. And, you know, it was, like, these phenomenal, like, I never realized that it could be so much. Uh, And they actually had some rules in there for playing those, quote-unquote, expert-level-type characters, right, that were in there, NPCs.
0: Yeah, it's almost like, uh, you know, some of those modules, like Keep on the Borderlands, for example, is uh, basically a little campaign all in itself. Because there's, it I is. mean, yeah.
2: Yeah, and I think that was really where uh, I started learning a little bit, because remember, even if you were going to do a dungeon crawl, as kind of they're uh, affectionately referred to, you know, you had to, you had to pull back. Right. You had to you had to go ahead yeah. and rest and recuperate because remember, well, maybe, you know, for, for everybody's benefit, if you've actually dropped below zero hit points or even if you've gotten to zero in first edition rules as written, as we kind of like correlate that back to. But right, you drop into a coma and you need like another week to actually recuperate. Before yeah. you're yeah. actually be able to do anything. So if you end up having an encounter where arguably that happened in a big adversary, you would need to, you know, retreat back to your safe spot or, or to the keep or whatever and then come back in. And uh, the, the occupants of the lair or, you know, the setting might have been in, in terms of, you know, G1, it might have been that uh, you needed to deal with now new adversaries that are in there or better prepared adversaries, Right. And I think there was, that was really what B2 was about, was there was no way that there was any character that I know of that could actually start and finish that particular module without being able to go back and rest and recuperate.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, you can't do it. You can't do it. I mean, the other thing is, you know, each cave section in the Caves of Chaos is like a separate dungeon, really. It's not one big dungeon, you know.
2: (laughs) I think if I'm trying to remember, I think that there was, and I can visualize the map right now, I yeah. want to say there was like 57 or 61 or 62 different rooms or or areas for you to encounter in just that one particular, you know, dungeon level.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's massive. Phenomenal number, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that's a good example of, uh, you know, a module... Uh, teaching you how to game master. I think that's probably the perfect introductory module, even today. Like I, I would recommend that somebody be like, here, uh, you, you know, run this. If you if you don't know how to game master, read this.
2: <laughs> you know what? Because it did give you a lot of information for the Dungeon Master. And even though, you know, I think that, I think it was really probably, what would it have been? Would it have been B1 maybe? Um, where actually they had the text box, you know, yeah. for each of your yeah. particular rooms that you would go into, um, that, you know, this is what you're supposed to read and the player information that would end up happening. You started incorporating that a little bit more, obviously, in the, you know, the Dungeon Magazine. And I think that it it really helped uh, make it so that it was consistent and captured the, the player's attention. But if you started to become more comfortable, you could certainly uh, – you know, you could certainly ad lib and and make that possible and enjoyable beyond what was written there. Uh, It was kind of like that module setting for conventions. You know, this is the standard block text that you needed to read to everybody. So there was enough information for them to score their points uh, and be, you know, for the open, right? For the, you know, AD&D opens that, you know, took place there at Gen Con. Right. But for us that maybe had you know, experience that kind of style. We we leveraged that or or we use that for the players and it made us better, even if we were really experienced, because it it made it so we were immediately comfortable and confident that, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Um, you know, sometimes judges killed the you know the bulls vol the most voluminous of producers of probably content arguably at that time for first edition, yeah, and the level of detail that they went through, you had to glean some of that information and and you know transfer that that data for lack of better terms to your players, right? So those modules made me really feel more comfortable uh about picking them up for the first time is really what it was.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah. You, you know, the other one, the other one that really I, I still run over and over and had a big influence on me was, uh, and and it's a classic, is Village of Homlet, And it was kind of the oh. same deal with B2. You know, it, it really was a perfect like introduction to running a game, setting up a campaign. And again, it's all if it's it's the perfect springboard for a campaign. You, you know,
2: there's there is a lot to what you had said. In terms of starting with those modules, you know, I've, I've seen people who kind of overthink things, right? Myself, I've been guilty of that myself, right? And I'm like, oh, you know, I can run, I'm a, I know, I know how to Dungeon Master. I've done it for 20 years or 30 years or whatever at that particular time. I'm going to go ahead and run, uh, you know, Temple of Elemental Evil. Uh, Let me tell you, you don't just do that. You know, there's no work on that. And so with the village one, it did make it possible for somebody who had a level of familiarity, even an advanced level of familiarity with the rules and such. It gave a a really a a great degree of confidence so that you could actually then go forward to the next series of modules that you might go ahead uh, and put forth, as well as the creativity.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's
2: what I think it is. It's about instilling that confidence. And like anything, if you're going to be a leader, you've got to exude that confidence. And, you know, I don't want to pontificate too much on that. But, you know, you you really have to drive and and be a good leader for the group. And you do so normally by, you know, the, the fundamental grounded things, right? Your familiarity and your knowledge of the rules, but also the setting. And then, as it relates, if it's simple enough, then you're more confident. You've done your preparation, and then you can articulate it as well as spin on a dime. If you wanted to do some impromptu type of role playing or problem solving or introduction with the wandering monsters, uh, that's going to be where it becomes important that confidence for you. I really firmly believe that, and that's why I think I'm. I'm not a great dungeon master. I'm. I don't. Uh, I don't have a lot of different voices or type of behavior or personalities, but I try, but I get the experience is enough that I get the point across. And, you know, I do so because of the confidence and that prep work that I do.
0: Yeah. You know, I, being a good game master, isn't all about, you know, making, you don't have to be uh, a director or an actor to be a good game master. You know, if you can, if you can just run a good game competently, and everybody's having a good time, mission accomplished. Yeah, you know, voices, won't,
1: so, voices won't save a bad story.
0: No, yeah. Oh, well said. I like that, Chase. Yeah, that's well said. Um, you know, I mean, that, that kind of stuff helps for sure, um, but it's, it, it's not necessary. You know, you don't have to do it. Um, I, think a, and a, I think a lot of people nowadays feel really pressured to do those kind of things just because, you know, you have a oh. lot of new people coming in with watching Critical Role, and uh, all these, the, all these other excellent sh- shows and game masters and players and such that you know they're professional actors or they're you know what have you and I, th- I feel like people are pressured, um, especially new game masters, that if they're not doing that kind of thing, that they're not doing their job, which is incorrect, you know.
2: Yeah, and you sometimes, sometimes as a, a dungeon master or any type of you know, game master or a person that's articulate, you know, sometimes you have those particular players where they may know the module a little bit already, if they, you know, been familiar with it or had it in a previous edition potentially, right. That, you know, it's just being rewritten or they um, have a certain particular personality. And so one of the things that I try to do to help not only myself, but also the players is to, to, engage and pull in those other players where only their particular character really has the ability to make something happen and that way you're kind of not reducing the other one but you're actually increasing the other person and then what that does and and you you never want to go ahead and uh, make somebody that is i want to say a little like shy or anything like that but maybe not quite as comfortable is you don't want to pounce on them or make them you know, feel foolish for making a decision in something like that, right? right and right. so you want to really build up that confidence. And, and really that's a job as a, a dungeon master or a leader or a group person that, that's responsible for it. And, and thereby, the next time it comes up, maybe they'll be a little more vocal uh, about how to do something or the first time that they're encountering uh, a particular monster. And it's not the most charismatic player at the table, for lack of better terms, that uh, is the one that usually solves or figures things out. It's so true. The one that I was like, wow, you know, that's really creative. Let's go with that, you know. And it's enjoyable when you see that for the first time and everybody else just kind of looks back and says, you know, if you're going to say something and you say one thing, that's the thing you you did right.
0: (laughs) So. absolutely. Yeah. So Bill, you were talking about a really important point about, um, you know, being a game master, being a leader. And I think that's a really important thing people forget about is you really are a leader. You're a role model, uh, to really, really bring the players out and make them great players. Cause you can have a great game master, but if you don't have great players, you're not going to have a great game. Right. And I think it's up to the game master to really, really perpetuate that and, you know, teach players, you know, not just, um, you know, not just sit at the table and create a great story and all that, but actually teach them what they did wrong, you know, how to how to play their character and, and give them advice and, and make them a better, um, you know, make them a better player because it's, it's going to make the whole experience better, right?
2: Absolutely. Even, you know, the, the latest campaign or, or series of modules that I'm running through, I'm helping individual players in terms of, how first edition combat or third edition or fifth edition combat would go ahead and how their character should look at things, uh, not in terms of changing them, but just to go ahead and make them aware. And the best example is, you know, so many times that, you know, that character wants to go ahead and run into melee. Uh, the reality is they should sit back and loose a couple of arrows at them because now you've just basically doubled your number of attacks. Uh, yep. it, it, you know with, with arguably a similar Thacko, right? Or that that magic user in terms of their spell selection, you know the or which ones they want to go ahead and possibly add to their spell books uh, that are going to be most useful for them. Obviously there's probably three or four that everybody wants to have, but those other ones that, you know, which ones they should maybe maybe consider, Uh, you know, taking in, or the Cleric, you know, do you want to, do you think that Command Bless and the Protection spell and Cure Light Wounds is going to be the best first level spells? Probably, but maybe not. You know, when you start getting up to you know third or fourth level spells, you may go ahead and have a greater variation at that first level because you have better healing or better defensive or better uh, choices, right, or other choices, I should say. So I think it's you don't try to do that in the game. Uh, you try to go ahead and point out to them that as a option, right? not, not telling them what to do, but right. giving them an option to say there's, there's reasons that you may want to go ahead and consider this. Uh, again, I try to approach it from, you know, a softer kind of positioning, but also I then bring in what I believe is the factual element of it to really kind of drive the point home. Cause again, it's, you know, it's not just about, you know, the math or the numbers. It's also, you know, what do they want to play with their character? How do they see that that character developing? Uh, yeah. So that's where I, I give them options for educating them.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, just switching gears a little bit. I, I know, know, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you about this because I am too. And uh, we can expand upon this quite a bit as, you know, miniatures and props and things. I'm a big miniatures guy. I know you are too. Uh, yeah. How do you think that really adds to the game? Those kind of things.
2: You know, one of the things and this is, um, you know, just taking me back and I'll never forget this. Right. I, I've been known to, you know, compete against some of the, the the major collectors, not always winning, of course. But, you know, in terms of whether it's auctions or otherwise. And it was rather interesting. Somebody made a point to me is to say, you know, Bill, you're not really this type of person or that person. You're really like a, a miniatures guy. Everybody kind of thinks of you as a miniatures person. And it and it kind of struck me because it, it was a great observation by, you know, somebody, you know, sometimes when you're so close to it. And I recognize that that's probably true because I get excited about my little toys or my little props that I get to go ahead and play with my minis yeah. more so than I do in terms of reading a great module. It's like, Oh man, check out this miniature or look at that paint job or wow, I can use this one today. And so it's, it's arguably a level of excitement, even though I've got, and I dare say I literally have hundreds of thousands of miniatures that, and, it, and I know that's a big amount, but you know, I really do. I really do love it. And I look at, the other elements of that I've acquired to enhance the playability or the enjoyment for the players, you know, maybe it's the first time they've seen something, uh, you know, that that's great. Maybe it's not. uh, But I like to go ahead and say, right. You know, whether it's uh, this character from Ral Partha or Reaper or, you know, WizKids or, or some of the other, you know, different things, the grenadier, you know, all the different uh lead or, or or white white pewter, you know, those kinds of things, or the plastic or the 3D, whatever it might be, it's uh it's something visual, right? That they can go ahead and have represented. Uh the yeah. Dwarven Forge uh has been, you know, a phenomenal thing for me personally in terms of being able to do. I've always kind of enjoyed that those dungeon settings. And so I definitely invested uh, in that particular <laughs> product, or shall we say, products. And and again, because a lot of times the it's somewhat incumbent upon the dungeon master to to, to present something. You don't obviously need that. And what I would say is I've had as much success in my Chessex maps. Or, you know, maps that have been laminated or I've made bigger or what have you for the characters as I've had is this, you know, Hearst Arts or, you know, Dwarven Forge. But what it does do for the characters that are, they can visualize it and it gets them maybe more into the setting, just a little bit more, which for me, like I said, you know, experienced, but I have a way to go before I would say I would be a master level game master or DM is to say that, you know, that helps me facilitate, uh, what's taking place in the, uh, the setting, you know, and the creativity people are, uh, you know, appreciative because not everybody that plays D D is, you know, the, uh, the mid max or, you know, math type person in terms of their characters, right. They appreciate yeah. the the creativity or the setting. So for me, that gives a a level of experience for party members that uh, they can enjoy it. So that's why I've done it.
1: Yeah, and I I feel like with miniatures, especially at the gaming table, it takes away maybe that base to where when you have that visualization already, it allows your imagination to just go that step further with it.
2: That's literally, that's all. I mean, you know, whether it's, whether it's ten dollars, a hundred dollars, $1, a thousand dollars, or I dare say other figures, right? That you know is is on the table for you, right? Is that you know a person can go ahead and and see it, and and then they, how do I say it? They connect it's a little more real, right? They connect, right? It, it's it's real, right? You know, it, it, and we all had to start at some particular place, but because it's now more affordable potentially, right? And, and the hobby has really kind of evolved that, you know, it's available to all levels of, you know, various uh, you know, income or disposable income for their hobby. Right. And what I like to see is my characters when they bring instead of me bringing it, when they bring their own miniature. And I know that they're not a uh, an artisan themselves in terms of their painting but they've actually brought it and and they want to play with that particular character. They've gone out and spent that money and the time and everything that is, that's all I need. You know, for me, that's the excitement is seeing a gel for them. Sure. I can go ahead and bring a thousand miniatures. What kind of wizard do you want to play? Do you want to play, you know, ABCD X, you know, whatever, or, you know, the one that they have. So that's actually what I think also helps is by me, sharing or showing those items, they in turn go ahead and say, oh, well, I want to go ahead and have that. And then that just brings, Chase, that next level of, you know, connection for them when they do it themselves and they bring their character. Oh, I want to play with mine today. Or, you know, they bring their, uh, you know, they bring their follower or, you know, they bring whatever it might be. Uh, that actually is important to them for, you know, playing. That's, that's, that's really what I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, no, I, I think miniatures uh, add a whole hell of a lot to the game. Um, you know, the, the funny part is I'm a big miniatures guy, uh, just like you, Bill, and I'm also a big war gamer. Uh, but the funny uh-huh. part is most of time when I play D and D or most role playing games, it's always theater of the mind. Um, it's only been, well, I I've used miniatures many times and I think yeah. it's, I think it really depends on the type of game that I'm running. Uh, as far as like you know, game like literally you know, different game system. Because you know, if I'm running like Call of Cthulhu, I- I'm probably not going to use miniatures. That that's more of a theater of the mind kind of game for me. But D and D, really, really, uh, it-, it really adds something to have miniatures for D and D. I think uh, it- I wouldn't say it's paramount. I don't. You don't have to, but it really does add something. And as of recent, I've really gotten back in. To using miniatures for D anD D, uh, and I can I can tell that my group you know really really enjoys that aspect. It, re- it really brings the game to life, you know.
1: And like I'm the opposite of that because like I've always wanted to be more of a miniatures guy, and it's just been a part of the hobby that I just never have been able to like jump both feet into.
2: Well, you know, I'm you know, like I said, I've had uh, I've had different. Points in my life where, where different things were were available, right? And I think that I, for me, I appreciate them more, right? Because I've had to, you know, kind of acquire them myself. And when I say that, the uh I go back to those probably hundred miniatures that's in that one Chessex gray box of mine that literally it doesn't matter what it is. That's the box that I go to. But I I love the miniatures because it, it brings that level of creativity for both myself and the players. But there's other elements. And you mentioned, you know, some other settings. I have seen uh, some of the greatest uh, demonstration and, and events that have been held, whether it be, you know, with, Miniature Building Authority or the products from, you know, Games Workshop. We obviously, I, I already mentioned the, the Dwarven Forge. But, you know, from the creativity that that shows. And and I've had more people at the events that I've run go ahead and be stopping to take pictures, uh, you know, to go ahead and share like, oh, wow, look how this person did this or did that. Then actually, you know, sitting down and playing the event. And, and, you know, for me, that's rewarding as well, because then that reinforces that, oh, I, I invested wisely or I did the right thing. Not because that instant little gratification of taking somebody taking a picture, but they ask me about how it was created or where did that come from or what that was. And I'm sharing that knowledge so that it's carrying it forward so other people can go ahead and, you know, enjoy it. Right. And the the different products that I use. I'm not a modeler like some of these people uh, or am able to go ahead and paint. Well, I mean, I usually contract with people to go ahead and help me with those things. But for me, I, I'm the one who kind of simulates it or assembles it so that, you know, everything that I need is kind of in these storage containers for the setting or for the event that takes place. So I think that whether it's a, a boot hill type of event or, you know, call of Cthulhu type of event that I am uh, actually running. I I've got the, you know, 1920s, right. You know, type setting. So I've got those particular miniatures already all set up, but also the terrain uh, that goes with that particular module or setting. So i like to think of it from that perspective. It makes the experience like even better because people are excited in terms of playing in the event too.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, what you were talking about, you know, sharing that experience and teaching people, you know, how to bring that experience to their table, I think is a really important part of, part of the hobby, too. I've always been one, even though I'm not the greatest painter in the world, I'm decent at it. And I'm a decent modeler. And, I, you know, I, I don't mind showing people, you know, if I'm sitting down painting at the hobby store and somebody comes over and asks me some questions about it, I always tell them, sit down, grab a brush, I'll show you. You know, I, I have no problem teaching people that thing. Um, And I, I think that's something that's been missed uh, as of recent. I, you know, a lot of people I see in the the game stores are very guarded and don't want to teach people how to do things, or whatever. And you oh, know, yeah, yeah.
2: You, you uh, make a great point that that's really good that you do that. It really is. Go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I I just think that's a really important part of the hobby. Not just showing people how to play the game, but also how to do other aspects of the hobby, and uh, you know, also. You know, me and you were talking about this earlier, exploring other aspects of the hobby. You know, it's like, oh, you like you like this? You like D&D? You like miniatures? Well, check this out. You know, this is a uh, Napoleonic War gaming, or this is, you know, this is a uh, Warhammer or this is, you know, uh, squad leader or whatever, you know, um, you know, bringing bringing other people. You know, you, you can really it's important to influence people and teach people and, uh, you know, steer people, I think. Right.
2: It is. And and that's actually, I think, you know, there's really three things that I want to say here. So I'll just kind of go through them real quick. Right. There's the collecting aspect that we have talked about. There is the knowledge from, you know, the games, but being able to to relate that to the new genre of games that's coming out. Like, that's kind of the evolution. So it's nice that I can collect something and I put it on my shelf and don't use it. Then there's the ones where, you know, I have it, I've tried it, and now I want to incorporate it. And then being able to use those, those tactics or that strategy for new games that are coming out. Because I would argue there is less original creativity in a lot of the games. They're usually expanding or building upon a play style yep. capability whether it's a, whether it's a board game or a war game or what have you, uh, you know, they're trying to, you know, they're not trying to reteach somebody that they've already invested a lot of time. They're trying to have them have a particular style of play or knowledge base, uh, that they can sell to again. Right. I mean, that's kind of the marketing aspect, but when when I try to, when I try to bring something forward, I like and I mentioned this before, like things of three, right. You know, I've got like the, the basic, the advanced, and then I call expert, right, type of category. So I give them enough so that they can go ahead and learn the mechanic of the game. Right. Uh, then the next level is, as I call it, there's different levels of competitive play almost, right? Then the next is, well, not only what's good for your character or your play, Uh, or your miniatures or whatever you're actually going to be playing. But what do you think your opponent's going to be doing, right? Are they going to be charging in on you? Or are they going to stand back and wait to see what you do? Uh, Does it make sense that, you know, now they want to, you know, maybe tax somebody or they want to go ahead and, and gather up some particular resources so they're turtling up or something, right? And then, you know, the last piece that, you know, when I think about the expert, it's really in terms of a strategy. It's not only about the winning, but it's, it is in terms of a winning theme or a winning style of play so that now when another person at the table is already knows that strategy as well. For example, you want to uh, maybe in a particular game, you want to be the first one to score, let's say, 50 points, right? Uh, yeah. And, you know, you can do that in a certain manner. Uh, or you want to get 10 cards or something. And so what you now at that expert level, you know, the style of play by the way that the person is starting off, or how they're behaving, or what they're looking at. Uh, So now you can go ahead and respond and adapt to that, rather than just being a one track mind, right, you know, in terms of, you know, those other level or other skill sets. And I think that, Dungeons and Dragons, role playing games, you know, they they have needed or they they are probably the best marketers right now in terms of that additional level of skill set of play.
0: Right. And,
2: you know, that that's actually why I think that, you know, because you're you're appealing to people that are uh, very familiar with with different game systems. And they can go ahead and pick up anything and go at any particular product and just absorb it. Then there's the other the presentation where people now can you know play a, a certain game and you know go ahead and enjoy it. Uh, maybe that's all they need. If they want to have an expansion and add to it, you know they can do that rather than an entirely new game. And so I think that that is uh, I think that's going to continue for a while. Uh, I don't see that actually changing. It it may evolve because now games are bigger, they're more expensive. You can get more out of the box, whether it's through Kickstarter or some of these massive boxes of games that you can go ahead and buy at the retail location or online, whatever you do. And and so that's kind of nice uh, for people that are starting out too. They don't have to you know invest the hundreds of dollars on a particular game, but maybe they can invest. uh, you know, for a particular major game and be able to enjoy it for multiple skill levels of play.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the whole industry is kind of changing, not just role-playing games, but you know, board games, as you said, war games, everything's kind of changing uh, in different ways. It's all, it's all kind of splitting off in different directions, you know? Yeah. I mean, I have
2: some, you know, some people that, uh, you know, Come to me, and sometimes and say, "Hey, Bill, what do you think is going to be, you know, the next hot style of game, or what do you think that people are are interested in terms of playing?" And you know, I'll, I'll often our opinions like anything, uh, but I usually, again, you know, I type try to approach it as, you know, "What are people playing today? When are they going to run out of that cycle of style of play, and they'll be looking for something new?" whether it being in, in terms of miniatures. And I would argue that, you know, I, I predicted a few times uh, that, you know, big hits. But with that, it it's, again, it's just an educated guess. I think that, you know, it really comes from the audience in terms of what their disposable income is, but also what are their friends and others doing? You know, people... People want to go ahead and be part of a group inherently, I think. And so right. when you see other people doing something, they're like, oh, well, that's probably, you know, that's probably fun. I want to do that, too. So how do I do that? And, and so the first part of any type of messaging or marketing is you've got to have some champions that carry that out. And if you can go ahead and, and get uh, a core group of people that understand your game or what it is that you're releasing, whether it's game design or development, I really think it's like you could have the best game out there, but if you can't market it or get it into the hands of other people besides you just selling it or maybe even 20 stores selling it, you've got to make a big splash uh, into this. Otherwise, you're going to get drowned out by all of the products that are out there.
0: Yeah, there's just an unbelievable amount of options now. And yeah, you're absolutely right. You've got to be really crafty about the ways... Uh, you market your products. Cause not only do you have big companies putting stuff out now, but you have independent publishers, people throwing stuff up on, uh, you know, drive through RPG or, you know, Lulu or what have you. Uh, it, <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, it's just an unbelievable amount of options now. So you really have to stick out, you know, and you, yeah, having a champion for your champions for your game is a big deal. And, you know, a lot of companies have become very clever and crafty about doing that offering, you know, these kind of, um, you know, play testing or uh, sorry, not play testing, but like demo, you know, partner programs and things.
2: Yeah, it's been a little bit hard. Um, but if you can actually put good content out that people can understand, uh, and, and what I mean is not just explaining the rules, but actually, and it's, it's really kind of weird. I don't know how we lost this, but, you know, actually having a sample round or a sample turn where people are doing things. I almost want to just, you know, I don't know where we lost that in terms of explaining some of the rules. Um, You know, let's do a sample turn or even online. A lot of the people, they're very articulative and they're very representative of it, but we miss out like actual and actual turn goes. And sometimes that's a longer video and it takes a little bit of effort, but um, it's really informative. And I I go back to really the example, you know, at, at Gen Con or any of the conventions, where you sit down and you can go ahead and play their game and somebody's yep. demoing it for you, and that's the best way to learn it. Right? Oh I, yeah. You can't that you see other people playing it.
1: I think part of the explanation part is that when they're making the videos, again, when you're so ingrained in something, you sometimes skip over those easy steps and forget to explain it to someone that completely has no idea what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, definitely some mechanics in You know, everybody can, uh, you know, argue whether it's a a good game or a bad game or not. But, you know, you look at some of the real staples that uh, I think that have been instrumental. Uh, You know, you can say Puerto Rico, you know, Splendor. You can say, uh, you know, some of the XX games or or Power Grid if you were going to go more complex. But even the basic ones, uh, you know, Gizmo or something like that. And I'm not, you know, I'm just throwing out some names. But there's a mechanic and what you lose in terms of explaining the rules is how to do a basic turn right you don't need to add and explain all of the levels of complexity on some of those games that i mentioned at least from a board game perspective but you want to go ahead and teach them as i look at it that very first level what can i do on my turn You know, because I don't have a ship or I don't have resources or I don't have money. So, you know what? I can't do those four or five things. And, you know, it's one thing to explain the rules. It's one thing to explain, well, this is how a turn goes. But you need to do it in a manner that there's there's why are you doing that? That's really what it is. That's the comprehension that I think that people are missing in terms of articulating on these videos and other things. Is that that comprehension for their audience as to why you ended up doing something rather than just stating that that's what you did,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I I couldn't agree with you more, Bill. you know, i've I've seen many games that I've been interested in and just couldn't just couldn't really grasp. And then I see it again, maybe a year later or whatever, and somebody's playing it, and I sit down to play it, and I'm like, oh, this is this is actually a great game, you know, because it was demonstrated that the, a, a turn, just a basic turn. And I, could, I can fully grasp what the game's all about, you know?
2: Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, and again, I mentioned, you know, like at the beginning of our session, right, Is you know, about my mom. And, and she, really, uh, she really kind of instilled that into me, right? She was a teacher. And I've got other family members that, you know, are teachers and such. And it was really about, you know, the explaining of, you know, so that people can comprehend that they can then in turn act upon it. Rather than just, you know, reading the rules or reading the book or doing problems with math, you know, it's taking to the next level so that when they see it, they can actually, you know, make sense of it. And yeah, so absolutely. you know, that that was important. And sometimes it takes a little bit. Yeah. There's a I had somebody who explained a game to me the other day and was very articulative very informational, knew the rules, probably could have been obviously maybe even somebody that designed the game, right? Just somebody who knew it very well. But he lost a few of us because we were not able to comprehend the mechanic until we actually saw it in a in a setting and in terms of a play. So literally, when I'm teaching players, I don't want to explain everything on the board. You know, some of these boards are very complex and beautiful and, and there's lots of choices or even in the game right you know back to role playing i don't want to explain you know all of this stuff but i'm gonna yeah. i'm gonna trickle it out you know and right. what happens is, is some people you know that are are very uh familiar with a subject matter is they over explain um uh, and their audience it's lost upon them as to why so it's just enough for me to say you know what we're going to take a dummy turn Everybody's got all their cards out in front of them. We're going to go ahead and go a turn and we're going to play each person's hand, or we're going to play each person's round, whether it's through a dice or through its miniatures or, you know, even role-playing and everybody is going to just say, we're going to do this action or this action and then explain to them why that's relevant. That's how I kind of like, and I think is most important. Who cares what the score is or who cares who ends up winning or or if we lose that particular, uh, you know, encounter, uh, whether we're playing a, a board game or we're doing a role playing thing, it's like you know, I just want to show you how it actually works, and then we'll try it again.
0: Sure. Yeah. No. That's that's a great point. I, and you know, we we already said it. You know, I, it's very important to know. Um, how to, how to teach people how to play games. You know, you really, you really need to be um, a leader and you have to be a good teacher. And I think that if you, if you have that knowledge and wisdom, it's important to impart it.
1: And I, I think also with teaching competitive games, especially, you have to be willing to not be aggressive in the game.
2: Yeah. I was just going to go ahead and ask what you thought about that, Chase, because I think, you know, Cody made that comment about that. And I was saying, I was like, you know what, I'm wondering what Chase has about that. Because you bring up a great point, you know, there is teaching a game and then there's teaching a competitive game and then there's actually being able to teach and teach people who already know the game well, right? Mm -hmm. Because even certain styles of play and we could pick on magic as, you know, there's new releases and other stuff that have come out is, you know, there's certain mechanics that are going to remain the same, but there's new techniques. Uh, and how you apply that and the replayability of it becomes important. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So uh, I was going to mention one, one little thing about, you know, the, the gaming that I think is important, whether it's as a good game master or as a good teacher or an educator or, or just facilitating is when you're, when you're playing uh, with you know, new players uh, and sometimes even people that you've played with a long time is that when you're ex- explaining the actual rules and somebody maybe doesn't understand it, it's not just enough to actually ask, you know, does that make sense to everybody? You know, I, I find myself doing that as well, but it's actually in the middle of the game because, again, you're just teaching it is to say, OK, let's stop. So aside from, you know, playing an open hand or, or doing something, you kind of stop and you explain to them from your experience, right, and then maybe others as to why something was a very good decision or maybe is maybe, a, you know, one that they should rethink or a suspect because you want to capture that right then and there rather than trying to do it later. Right? That's the one thing I think I've learned, you know, stop everything. We've got to explain
0: this. No. Yeah. That's, that's actually really, um, that's a really good point. Uh, sometimes I forget that even, even though I, I, I try to do that, especially when I'm playing, uh, war games with people, you know, cause I, have taught a lot of people how to play different miniature games and war games. And, uh, you know, a lot of times that's, that's a very important thing to do is stop the game and explain why they did something wrong. Right. Let them, maybe let them do it first. Let them make the mistake and then explain why they did it.
2: And sometimes it's not readily apparent. You have to, and, and, and sometimes, and I find this out uh, because of the way the rules are. And I've got some, <laughs> crazily enough, I play miniatures with, uh, you know, a couple of individuals that you know, were tank commanders or they were pilots themselves, you know, in the Air Force or the Navy and stuff. And so, you know, I think I'm a pretty good gamer, actually. I'm pretty good. And then I run into these guys and I'm like, hmm, yeah, okay. And and they can't really explain the right at the very moment why something happened, because I'm looking at it and I'm like, OK, well, my 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 turn is this or my firing control is this or what have you. And then I can kind of see it like two turns later. It was like, oh, wow, that's uh that's what you meant by it, you know, and and so sometimes, you know, right in the moment, they already know the answer, and so you kind of have to balance it. It depends on the level of sophistication of the game and the people that you're playing with. Sometimes you have to wait for that event to occur, because if it's something that you know, if you're deciding to go ahead and uh, you know make a particular tactical decision or or fire your fire your uh, you know your missiles you know too far away or you know whatever and. They need to, you. You have to experience it or have to have some of that correlation. So you got to balance it, right? And, and that's yeah. sort of the only yeah. caveat I was just going to mention. You know, I you want to jump to the answer, and then sometimes you have to let them see it and to say, "Oh, yeah, that's what it really meant." You know, that's why you were able to do that to me. You know, you were right. able to get on my exactly. plane better. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of times when I'm playing a game with somebody, I, I. I give them suggestions because, you know, I'm, uh, a lot of times if you're playing a new game, you don't quite know what to do. And I'll give suggestions. And then I'm like, you know, at the at the end of my suggestions, I'm always like, do what you want. Then after they do what they want, I explain to them why that was a good or bad decision or what have you. Right.
2: Yeah. The, the, the only time that I would go ahead and say we, we did this. So I run a um, I, I help run, um, you know, some some local gamers. I facilitate at a local hotel. I, I run um, basically ten times a month. I uh, I get a hotel space uh, for you know people to go ahead and have a place to play because otherwise you know during these times they might not have been able to get out or have a place that's you know safe or otherwise uh, to be able to go ahead and game. And so uh, I, I've gone ahead and done that. But really, aside from that, you know I I think that there's some gamers that we had for that particular setting that, you know, when they come in, they're kind of like predisposed to, you know, like what type of game you're going to go ahead and play. And I mm-hmm. think that when they, when you explain to them, you know, we're going to, we're going to play this particular game uh, or, you know, it's kind of like planned out now they've got, you know, they're, they're getting excited about it. So they maybe want to do a little bit of research. And then when we sit down and we actually play, uh, whatever that game is You know I try to impart on them But you know what invariably happens You know I usually have the uh, I've got the bullseye on me right and, uh, yeah. You know as I call it So I'm trying to teach two people in the game And there's two other people Or there's another person at the game That is like oh I'm going to win this one Right and so I can't teach them a mechanic If I'm kind of like play playing as I call it Right and, You yeah. know the- <laughs> so- <laughs> You know, I have to keep that in balance. You know, it, it's more important that, you know, we explain something. And so I mentioned one of the games already, you know, uh, it was called Power Grid. And so some of us are arguably really good at that game. And yep. there's a few others that we were teaching for the first time. And now they're like, oh, I want to play that game again. And so here's me. I'm trying to go ahead and do like stupid moves or mistakes in a game. And everybody else is horribly punishing me as a result of that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right.
2: But that's a great way for them to go ahead and learn. Right. And yeah. that,
1: that's another way to go ahead
2: and do it is if you, if you, if you only win the game, you know, and you try to explain to them that, well, here's why I won. You know, it's, it, it may be a more advanced level. So yeah. you teach them on the things, the mistakes, the mistakes, because I'll lose the game and I'll say, well, here's why I lost. And I think because after they've played it, they, unfortunately, or fortunate, I suppose, is they learn from the mistakes that I've demonstrated more so than the winning strategy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. that's pretty yeah. much what it boils down to is learning from your mistakes. No, yeah. it really that applies to any, any game, whether it be competitive or not. Right.
2: Well said, well said the, uh, One of the games that, you know, I I didn't really touch upon and that I wanted to kind of draw back to is the kind of, you know, I don't want to say made me who I am or or kind of really made it possible for me to enjoy uh, is really three different games. And they're they're a little bit older and it probably had to do with the people that I played with that actually taught me, right, Right. in terms of play. So I like to kind of like, you know, just share this with you. Uh, the individuals that I had played, I was, I was in my early twenties and I didn't really have like a lot of people that I would game with. And I don't, honestly, I don't even remember how I met some of these individuals, but I'm actually still in contact with them, you know, 30 years later. Right. And they taught me a, a couple of different games. And, you know, one of them happened to be advanced squad leader. And oh, yeah. It wasn't squad leader. It was advanced squad leader. And, yep. Then the the other piece of uh, another game that they they taught me was Axis and Allies, yeah, and and really that you know another game that they kind of taught me was uh, Titan. It's a Avalon Hill Monster Slugathon type game, and they're all based on D six. But mm-hmm. in all of those particular games, there's a you know a lot of very situational tactical little idiosyncrasies in terms of how you do things and you know, tactics and, you know, proven strategies that traditionally work. But the, but the reality is, you know, it just comes down to dice. You know, yeah. if in an advanced squad leader, if you roll ones all the time, you know, you're going to be generating heroes or yeah. if you're rolling sixes all the time, it doesn't matter how powerful that, that, you know, angel against my, my troll or, or Cyclops is going to be, I'm going to be defeating it. Right. And that's just, you know, those yeah. particular situations uh, or, if I'm playing uh, the and Axis and Allies, if I'm playing the the Russians with a whole big, huge stack of infantry, if I roll low all the times, those tanks are going to go away fast from the Germans attacking. So, <laughs> when I think about those games, the the individuals that I played with were were really good players. Yeah, uh, and they kind of through through that they taught me not only tactics. But what I would consider competitive type of style uh, of play that a lot of times you don't get from uh, the, the players nowadays, you know, they teach you how to go ahead and play or you maybe learn, but you learn that really very, I almost would consider it not only competitive, but like a cutthroat type of style of play where, you know, this is how you do it and you know, after getting beaten up enough time from them based on that, now I can return that favor uh, to others uh, that I go ahead and play against or play with. But it really, you know, there's, so there's different ways that you learn, you know, sometimes, you know, in that example that I had shared, you know, maybe, you know, I had thick skin enough and that was the only people I could play with as well. But, you know, I learned from them. So a lot of times the gaming, and what you learn and how you learn is people who have a really good command of the rules, understand the game, the setting, whatever it might be, but also teaching you a, a tactic or a skill. And so uh, that's what I try to do, also whether it's in D and D or other games that I end up, you know, showing or playing with folks.
0: Yeah, no, that's that's a really good point, Bill. And on that note, we've been going for quite a while. Yes, sir. Uh, um, but Bill. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for imparting some old school wisdom with us.
2: Well, it was really my pleasure. And I I thank you for allowing me to, you know, pontificate as well as uh, make this, uh, you know, possible for, you know, folks to go ahead and listen in and enjoy and and maybe take something away from it. So appreciate Cody and Chase, you putting this on and and having me on.
0: Yeah, absolutely, man. And anytime you want to come on in the future, just let us know. I'd be happy to. God bless to you. Take care. Well, this has been Dr- Dr- grumbles. Everybody have a good night
1: and we'll see you next time.